and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I am your host, Chris. This week, we talk about the great Stephen Hawking, since it was his birthday this week, and also the top science news, or at least my picks of the top science news from 2018. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. Hello and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris, and with me is my co-host, Carrie. How you doing, Carrie? Doing pretty good. It'd be good to be here. Awesome. So uh, it's been a little while since we released. We were on a hiatus. Uh, first, it was to kind of rebuild the studio office here, build a nice desk, uh, and then my computer went down, and that took a while to get fixed. But uh, we're back up. Got an awesome new desk, a new studio and recording area, a uh, computer that is working, which of course is an important part to recording. Uh, and we're back. Uh, and I'm happy to be here. And thanks everybody for sticking with us. And for those of you on social media who've been waiting patiently for us to uh, release another episode, thank you so very much. Got some exciting updates. Uh, first and foremost, we are joining a network. Yay! Yay! Network is called... The network is called Podfix Network, so you can check them out at podfixnetwork.com and check out all the awesome shows that are on there to include our friends into the portal. Uh, that's actually how we found the network, uh, but uh, it's going to be pretty cool. Which also leads me to my next bit of news is we will officially be moving our release from Monday to Thursdays. Uh, Woo! Thursdays! Thursdays, yes. Better fits with the uh, with the schedule of, of the network with the other podcasts they have. So, I mean, it's three days later than we do now, or you could think of it as four days early, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, also want to do a shout out to Andrew McKay and Amber Ray from Into the Portal Podcast for pledging support our Patreon at the Dash of Enthusiasm level. Thank you so much for your support. It is much appreciated. You guys already got your uh, your envelope full of goodies, so make sure you jump on the Discord channel to get your special rolls uh, as soon as you can. And anybody else, uh, if you check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash dash science, you can support us there. Uh, there's a couple different levels to get cool, awesome stuff. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Um, we have a new affiliates program. A lot of podcasts will do advertisements. You, uh, if you listen to podcasts, you probably will recognize a lot of the same places advertising over and over. I didn't want to do that. So what I've done is track down small online companies that are either personal friends of mine or are products that I actually use and enjoy. And I reached out to them and, uh, we got some feedback uh, first and foremost uh, is Coffee Gator, who makes awesome uh, coffee supplies like French presses, pour overs, uh, and and cups and stuff like that. Uh, the other one is Player One Coffee, who, as you can imagine, makes coffee and cocoa. Uh, and is last, it, is that Gamer Coffee? Uh, it is. It's Gamer Coffee with caffeine, extra caffeine. Not that regular coffee doesn't have uh, caffeine in it already. Does it have code red caffeine? It does not have code red caffeine. No. Uh, but it's probably very similar. It is the it is the code red of coffees. There you go. Uh, I don't think that's their official uh, <laughs> their official uh, what do you call it uh, pitch or whatever. But uh, code red of coffee. <laughs> uh, and then lastly, my good friends in Canada, Adventure Dice. Uh, they make 
uh, tabletop role-playing dice sets and these really cool custom dice bags. They're, they're literally chainmail dice bags, and they are amazing looking. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, and, uh, and they're going to potentially be bringing some other new cool stuff to their stores, so you can check them out at adventuredice.ca. And uh, if you stay tuned to the show, we'll give you discount codes to get you percentage off of these places and all sorts of awesome stuff. Uh, so thank you guys so much for supporting our show, and I look forward to working with you guys. We appreciate uh, it. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, in in other news, we also have a giveaway that we're going to be doing for the month of, or at least the rest of the month of January till February 7th, and I haven't even told you about this, I don't think. Carrie. I know nothing. <laughs> so uh, Coffee Gator supplied us with a 34-ounce vacuum-insulated silver stainless steel French press coffee maker. Uh, it normally sells for about 44 bucks online, uh, and we're going to give it away. We're going to give it away for, uh, for Woo, people who join coffee. our drawing. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of a Patreon drive, so if you go to patreon.com slash dash of science and you join at any level, uh, we will give you uh, one entry per dollar amount that you join at, plus a bonus uh, entry for every dollar. So if you join at the one level, you will get two entries. Join at the two dollars, you get four entries. Join at the five dollar, you'll get what? Ten. Yep, that's double. That's how doubling works, guys. I do math. <laughs> so we will be running that drawing for three weeks, uh, and we will announce who the winners are at February seventh uh, on our show. So make sure you go there and enter for your chance to win this awesome uh, Coffee Gator French press. Can I? Do I get to enter? Uh, we already have one. They sent us. They sent us one also. I know, but I want to enter. No, you can't. Well, I mean, I think that would just like be giving money to ourselves. Well, that sounds nice. <laughs> I don't think it gets us anywhere. But oh well, it's the thought that counts, I guess, right? Totally. <laughs> well, uh, I guess we should talk about our show this week. Uh, so we're kind of doing a a split into kind of two parts. Uh, I wanted to do a my review of top news stories, news science stories from 2018. Uh, but in preparing for that, I realized that uh, this week is a special week. It is the birthday of Stephen Hawking. Had he uh, still been alive and didn't pass away like he did, uh, I believe it was last March, he would have turned 77 on, I think it was Tuesday, January 8th. So I kind of wanted to dedicate the first little part of the show to kind of some little part on him. Uh, but, That's really nice. Yeah. So we can hear. I mean, he really deserves probably a full uh, a full on science bio like we did with Tesla and we're going to be doing with Newton here shortly. But I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, we'll 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 plan that and do that later. Uh, but for now, uh, I guess we should probably get on with the show. Time to get on with the show. All right, so we're going to talk about Stephen Hawking. What do you know about Stephen Hawking? Um, I know he did a lot of con uh, contributions to science and math, if that's correct, but I didn't know much about him personally. I mean, I know he was sick, obviously, but that's about all the information I know. Yeah, uh, he was pretty prevalent in, in science, specifically in astrophysics. Uh, his, his birthday, like I said, was January 8th, would have been 77 uh, and this is the first birthday since he passed away last year. Um, but I kind of want to talk about just some his some of his contributions, some of his thoughts, things he believes, stuff like that are kind of interesting. Um, and actually, right now uh, you can check in the show notes, and I'll have a link to Curiosity Stream, uh, where they're running a free stream of 
Stephen Hawking's favorite places, which I watched is about a little, a little under 30 minutes, but definitely worth a watch. It's pretty interesting. Uh, so he was sick and he was diagnosed with ALS actually at the age of 21. So that's what he had. ALS and, is pretty scary, right? That's like, uh, it comes on fast, right? And it's like, it, there's it no does. cure. Yeah. It's very aggressive. Uh, he felt lucky to have survived long enough to see some of his predictions proven true. Cause like the prognosis is two to five, two to five, not two to five, but two to five years, uh, after diagnosis is what it is and only 20 percent roughly live longer than five years uh and he didn't lived, he live for quite a long he time lived 55 years after his diagnosis so i don't know if you want to call that luck fate or providence but uh you know things that aren't really supported by science but it's just interesting that someone who defied the odds so amazingly uh also happened to provide so much knowledge for the world in astrophysics that's pretty interesting, actually. It, was it his, uh, like, money that kept him alive, or was it just he was just lucky? I think he was just lucky. You know, and in thinking about it, I'm not really sure how much money his family had when, when he was younger. Um, I know that most of his money that he had afterwards was because he was a prominent astrophysicist and writer. And, of course, guest starred on numerous things from Smallville to Big Bang Theory. And uh, he was even on Star Trek. I didn't know he was on Star Trek. That's yeah. pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so pretty much his his bread and butter, what he loved, what he spent most of his life studying uh, was the origins of the universe and the Big Bang Theory. Uh, and one of his issues was that the way that we visualize the Big Bang in movies and, and TV is not correct. Uh, for most part, like one of the biggest things is light didn't actually exist for hundreds of thousands of years after the expansion started. So it wasn't this giant bright, uh, explosion, at least in the visual spectrum. I'm sure it was pretty bright in the infrared spectrum because, uh, there's extreme heat thermal energy being generated. Uh, and it was kind of this point of infinite density at the beginning. So that's whenever you see anything like the Big Bang in even like shows like Cosmos or stuff like that, it's this big, bright, beautiful thing. And that's all artistically done so that, you know, it wouldn't be very uh, impressive to watch a black screen and then talk over it. Right. <laughs> yeah. You got to give it some pizzazz, but they've been doing that to science and in space for a very long time. Yeah. And it's I mean, we are creatures of the visual spectrum and we learn visually uh, you know, amongst other ways. So, I mean, when you're looking at like pictures of the galaxies and stuff, a lot of those are colored uh, because they don't actually look that way in the visual spectrum. They'll make certain colors, like in certain types of infrared frequencies, they will give specific colors that we can see just to visualize it. But a lot of people don't realize that when they're younger. So are like the blue spiral galaxies really blue? Um. Well, I think a lot of them, it depends on what image that you're talking about, really, because they'll take pictures in like x-ray or you know various infrared or ultraviolet spectrums or sometimes they will classify things as blue or red versus uh if it's blue shifted or red shifted which is a product of if it's approaching or uh moving away from the origin or us specifically uh so it's a matter of like doppler effect that they'll color them red or blue um if if that's what you're talking about i have to see specifically what you're talking about to answer that question better 
Yeah, I don't have a computer here to shoot you anything. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, anyways, back to the Big Bang. Uh, he noted that the Big Bang caused itself because time starts with the Big Bang, and if you don't have time, it is impossible for something to happen before in order to initiate it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, in a weird, crazy concept that time is. <laughs> yeah, time's pretty loose anyway. You can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah, it's interesting because time isn't really a thing of its own. It's more how we relate events to each other. But the fact that events don't all happen at the exact same time in a single reference frame means that time exists, uh, which also kind of brings up the idea of simultaneity, which is two things happening at the same time in the same reference frame versus different reference frames. If you remember uh, our talk about reference frames before, or should I give a refresher on that? No, you should give a refresher on that. All right. So basically a reference frame means a bounded system where everything is the same. So like when you're talking about in physics, a reference frame could be Earth, right? So if your reference frame is Earth, then if you're standing on Earth, you're not moving, even though in reality you're hurtling through space. Gotcha. Does that make sense? So mm -hmm. in a reference frame of Earth, everything is in relation to Earth, movement related to Earth, etc. Uh, so when you're dealing with two different reference frames, you could be one guy standing on Earth and one guy standing on a spaceship. The guy on Earth isn't moving in reference to Earth, and the guy on the spaceship isn't moving in reference to the spaceship, but they are moving in reference to each other, right? Uh-huh. So that's reference points. So what we're talking about here, about two things happening at the same time if you and i are both standing uh on earth and we both drop apples at the exact same time they will hit the ground at the exact same time and we can say they happened at the exact same time no matter where we are on earth if you account for how long it takes for sound and light to travel we can do those calculations and no matter what we can see that they happened at the same time right Mm -hmm. If somebody is standing on a different reference frame and sees those two things in our reference frame, even though they will disagree about how far they traveled, they will disagree about how long it took for them to hit the ground, they will still see them happening at the same time. That's cool. Now, on the other side, if you drop an apple here and I drop an apple on the spaceship... There is a way that you could do that, that it looks to both of us like it's happening at the same time, but from a third reference point, they are not. So you can only guarantee that th things happen at the same time if they are happening at the same time within the same reference frame. Okay, that makes sense. In a weird time sort of way. Yeah, time, <laughs> time is always a little wibbly wobbly. Yes, uh, but he made uh, kind of a few interesting and strange predictions when he was studying uh, the Big Bang. First, that there were imperfections within the Big Bang, that it wasn't perfect or uniform. There were variances in the heating, which would turn out to be very important in kind of the creation of matter and the universe in, in the way that it is today. And he also predicted that the flash of light that occurred something about 350,000 years after the initial expansion began is still expanding today and is still noticeable and can be seen as background radiation. And in fact, it is. It's a real thing that we have found called the cosmic background radiation. Uh, and it's the majority part of the static that you hear in the radio or when you turn on the old over-the-air TVs, you got that snow static. Mm -hmm. The back, cosmic background radiation is the primary reason that that exists. You're picking up that radiation variances. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. 
So the confirmation of background radiation uh, actually led to the confirmation of these imperfections because these imperfections were imprinted for the most part in the background radiation. You could see it, the variance in temperatures in different areas. So his one prediction being validated actually validated his other prediction. So that's kind of cool. That is very cool. Why don't you always validate my pr predictions? <clears throat> uh, do you mean emotions? No, no. <laughs> predictions. Uh, because they're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I was going to talk about how he was lucky to survive so long, but we kind of already talked about that. Yes, uh, we did. Yeah. Um, but not all of his predictions proved true. Um, you know, he is or was still human and he made mistakes. And he liked to talk about a bet that he made with a fellow astrophysicist. Uh, his bet was that all matter that fell into a black hole was lost forever. Now, we've all heard about black holes, the extreme gravity wells, which are too strong uh, for even light to escape once it passes the event horizon. And so even now, most people still have this concept that once things enter into a black hole, they're there forever and destroyed and yada, 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 right? I mean, is that your understanding of black holes? Uh, yeah, that was my understanding. Right, and it, it's not wrong, but it's not right. I mean, things are destroyed in that things exist in a formation of atoms beforehand, and they are pulled apart into their subatomic parts in a black hole. But they don't disappear. They're, they're not, like, destroyed. Uh, and when he was studying black holes, uh, have you heard of Hawking radiation? I have heard the term, but I don't know what it means. So Hawking radiation is an interesting thing. And this could potentially end into a very deep dive into quantum mechanics. I will try to keep it top layer or secondary layer as much as possible. Uh, but essentially, if you study uh, quantum mechanics and you, and, and you look at the universe and, and space, you realize that it actually isn't empty. Right? They have what they call virtual particles and antiparticles just popping into existence, pulling towards each other and destroying each other and popping out of existence, right? Okay. Uh, and this happens everywhere in space. But what they found is when this happens on the edge of the event horizon, sometimes they'll pop in, the pair will pop in, into existence, and one of them will be pulled off into the black hole, leaving the other one to escape into the universe. Now, if that side that goes into the black hole were to have been destroyed, uh, I guess let me back up. So when this happens, this can actually be a, a tool to siphon energy from a black hole. And if you cipher all of the energy from a black hole, the black hole disappears. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it's gone. So over time, knowing that this effect happens, eventually, if you're not constantly feeding more energy into the black hole, it will dissipate. And if it dissipates and doesn't exist anymore, what happens to that matter that's inside? Is it destroyed? Is it gone? You know, we don't know. Uh, but there are some interesting side effects that if that matter is destroyed, uh, it creates kind of an unstable universe. It makes the past and the future not stable or kind of fixed it's really hard to explain at a low level but obviously we know the past and the present are fine because we are here and we exist and we know the past happened so nothing can happen that's destroyed that already because then we wouldn't be here so if that's not possible then that matter that is 
going into the black hole must not be destroyed and, and never be recoverable. Or there's somehow for that information to be imprinted in the the kind of uh, distortions around a black hole. And that was how he kind of changed his prediction, which is a lot of high-level physics. I get it. But the whole point of that story was a prominent scientist had an opinion or a hypothesis, a prediction that he made. He was given or found himself new data that proved him wrong. And so he didn't stick to it. He didn't keep saying, no, I'm right. He changed his outlook. He changed his opinion. He changed his predictions to coincide with the new data, which is the mark of a true scientist. That's pretty cool. And a lot of people that aren't, I guess, well educated in in science, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, put him down for being wrong sometimes and changing his mind. But being wrong and changing your mind, as long as you're doing it to match data, isn't the sign of a bad scientist. It's the sign of a good scientist. You and always think, have to continue changing. That's part of the scientific method. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an self-correcting system that we follow. And if you are not capable of changing your conclusion based off of new data, then you're not doing science anymore. And people are fallible. And that is absolutely correct. Uh, but yeah, so one of the uh, other kind of ideas that he was a fan of was the idea that life exists elsewhere uh in the universe which isn't a an it's not a unique idea like lots of people believe this but he actually led a global effort to find life called breakthrough listen project uh not what i would have named it but you know whatever <laughs> it's pretty catchy yes uh essentially listening for signs of life on over 1 million at stars, basically, listening for radio signals and stuff, not unlike SETI. I'm not sure if they interact with SETI, if they're part of SETI. or if What is separate. SETI? SETI is the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute. It's a private, or not private, but a, a what do you call it, nonprofit organization run through donations. Uh, they've got large radio arrays that they use to listen for signals from outer space for extraterrestrial life. Has that been going on for a long time? Oh, yeah, a very long time. Uh, even back in, like, early 2000s, they had uh, created a program called SETI at Home that would use people's CPU power to evaluate and analyze data to look for signals. So, I mean, that's been going on since, though, probably early 80s, late 80s. I'm sure somebody actually knows that date, and I'm way wrong, and they'll correct me, but I, I'm saying right now I don't know, but it's been a long time. It's pretty neat. Do they still use your computer data like that? Uh, yeah, they still ha have it. I don't have it on my current computer. I used to have it on several computers uh, with the idea that if your system was used to find a signal that turned out to be something real, you would get credit for it and be like a co-author on the paper or whatever. Ooh, you could name it. That would be awesome. <clears throat> oh, I'm sure if it was an actual uh, intelligent society, they probably already have their own name. I realize, but we would name them before we met them. They'd be like Martians or Saturners. Well, there was that uh, signal they thought was legitimate. They called it uh, LGM for Little Green Men. Yeah, see, that's why we're not allowed to name things. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so this is a cool project that he, he kind of led, and they were listening to uh, uh, planets like, uh, I think it's called Galice, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Galice 832C. It's a super Earth that's about five times the mass of Earth, and it's about 16 light years away. 
unfortunately we aren't yet able to know a whole lot about a planet that far away i mean what we do know is pretty amazing considering how far away we are but based off of its size and where it's located with relation to its sun and the type of sun that it has uh it's either a uh basically a smoggy thick atmosphere hellhole that's tidal locked with its sun and has horrible seasons uh, or it's a nice Earth-like place with good seasons and plants and animals. <laughs> wow, those are the only options? Yeah, those are the only options. At least we narrowed it down to two yeah. random options. <laughs> Not sustainable of life or perfect, su- perfectly sustainable of life. One interesting thing about that planet, though, is because it is a red sun, if it does have plant life, it won't be green like ours. They'll be like black and dark violet, which would be pretty cool. That sounds pretty neat. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at some uh, University of North Dakota science experiments, they actually grew uh, several plants in different light sources. And so they actually have some black and dark violet and and reddish plants that they've grown under different lights that were perfectly edible and fine as far as nutritional value. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. But, well, we're assuming that anything that lives on there has to be sustained the same way we are. So, I mean, it is possible that we could find life on another planet that we wouldn't expect. Yeah, uh, if we did find a different, like a, there's theories of like silicon-based life forms, but the environment that something like that would have to live in probably wouldn't be an environment that we could live in, which is why we concentrate on carbon-based life forms because we assume that they would, for the most part, uh, if they aren't, what do they call them, uh, uh, extreme, what do you call those things, outliers, like extreme outlier things like the what are they called? Telegrades, tetragrades, whatever. The little don't microorganism remember. bear looking things. Oh, those things. Uh, I don't remember what they're called. They can live pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Outside of things like that or viri or things, uh, for the most part, carbon-based life forms, we presume would have an environment that would be also good enough for us or at least close. So I heard something cool on a show today that's very sciencey, and I thought I would share while I had the moment. Okay. Um, there's talk that they have decided that life may have been created in the deepest parts of the ocean along the vents on the uh, mid-Atlantic range. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard something like that. I thought that was pretty neat because, you know, they all look like aliens anyway. So, <laughs> Yeah, and I've actually read papers about, I mean, because the mid-level of the ocean is still some of the most unexplored regions, uh, even more so than the than the ocean bottom in a lot of places and the types of organisms that exist that are still yet to be classified, let alone discovered. And there's a lot of ones that they find that are like single-cell organisms or, or like uh, prehistoric-looking organisms that look very similar to what we suspect uh things looked like when they first became into existence on this planet uh so yeah i mean i can totally see that that's not my area of expertise so i can't really weigh in too much on it but i mean it sounds plausible right i thought it was pretty neat they also found at the like the very bottom of the marionette's trench they found an actual fish so there's creatures down there that are complex enough to be like full-grown fish Oh, I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm watching uh, Blue Planet 2, learning all kinds of cool stuff There's about the Blue ocean. Blue Planet 2? It is. It's on Netflix. I'm going to have to watch that. That sounds cool. It is very cool. I found some very cool stuff on there. All right. Well, ending our uh, segment with, not with, uh, on <laughs> Stephen Hawking, I just wanted to kind of say something that, that he said in his show that, that was kind of nice that I thought was interesting. Uh, he was fond 
of noting that so many things had to happen to be the way that things are today. Like if the moon wasn't there, we'd have cataclysmic seasonal changes. And if an electron charge was just slightly different, we wouldn't have light from stars. And if gravity was just a little bit weaker, matter would not form into planets. And so it's amazing to think of all the exact things that had to happen throughout the course of the entire universe in order for basically you and I to be here today recording this podcast. Yeah, I think about that kind of stuff a lot, actually, and it's kind of daunting. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting because it kind of hints at stuff like fate while still being completely scientific. Yeah, they definitely can see how there would be like a quote-unquote mover or a maker of some kind. Mm -hmm. But uh, on that note, Stephen Hawking, wherever you are, uh, happy birthday and thank you for your contributions. Thank you. Hey guys, as you know, I love supporting creators and artists. Last year, I ran into a guy at TwitchCon who does amazing leatherwork art. This last year, he did a series of star maps based on Johannes Hevelace. You can find the print reproductions in sets, as a calendar, and even the original leather pieces soon at his Etsy shop. Check for the link in the show notes and look up Cave Geek Art on Twitch. All right, so on with the next segment, talking about the biggest, in my opinion, there's my little classifier there, uh, news of science from 2018. So before we start... What's your favorite science news of 2018? My favorite science news of 2018 was the potential drug that is going to cure Huntington's disease. Oh, you had something. Boom! (laughs) Yes, that is really awesome. And uh, I was going to put that in here, but I thought that would probably only be pertinent to those of us who it would help, right? Yeah. So I didn't know where where it classified but it's a good one so i'm glad that you mentioned it yes huntington's disease has a new drug that is entering its third uh human trials uh here in the u.s canada and over in the uk and uh it's showing great promise for uh slowing down and potentially stopping and reversing the symptoms of huntington's so hopefully uh that'll be awesome and and on the market to purchase for everybody who has Huntington's very soon. That would be amazing considering how much of a hassle it's been to everyone over the years. Yes, yes. And it's actually, you know, it's not like I don't want to say and have it taken poorly by people who've lost family members to Huntington's. But if you think about the history of how long we've known about Huntington's and and how fast it the knowledge has progressed, Considering, I mean, it wasn't until, was it like late 90s, 98, before they even were able to identify, like, where Huntington's came from? Yeah, it took a long time. The, well, not a long time. I mean, it took it took time, well, but it Once was we not recognized that it was a disease and not, you know, demons or whatever crazy, you know, people before modern medicine thought things were, uh, <laughs> it, uh, I mean, from 98 to 2018... We've gone from not even knowing where it comes from or how it works at all to potentially having a serious treatment that prevents or stops or reduces or reverses symptoms completely and will potentially allow people to live a normal, healthy life, right? I mean, that's, that's amazing. Years. That's crazy. It's very crazy. But to everybody out there, here's to the hopes that they get it done. Yes, I agree. 
so the first thing that I have on my list uh, is actually one of the last things that happened in 2018 and something that I'm actually planning on doing a show with a geneticist who's been on before about uh, is essentially we had the first gene edited babies born at the end of 2018. Did you hear about that? What were they gene editing for? Uh, they were making, reducing their chances of contracting AIDS. They are essentially, I don't think it's 100%, but like 99.9% AIDS proof. That's pretty amazing, actually, considering the fact that AIDS is such a horrible disease. It is. Uh, the problem, well, first of all, it was a Chinese scientist shocked the world when he claimed that he created the first gene-edited baby, uh, and by baby we mean babies, because later he mentioned they were twins, uh, who were already a few weeks old when he made this announcement. But besides the science and technology advances, a lot of outrage in the general science community was heard because of the apparent disregard for science ethics. Yeah, working with babies never goes over well. Well, a lot of people don't believe that genetic editing on that scale is ready for live human trials, and they believe that he seriously put these babies at a lot of, of risk health-wise. Is he going to be doing time for that? I don't know. Uh, I mean, this happened in November, so we're still kind of seeing what happened. Apparently, he did it without the permission of his university or wherever he was working down there. Uh, and one of the issues is we don't, we have an understanding of the human genome, but we don't have a complete understanding. And it's not like the way that it's explained to people like uh, the, the layman, so to speak, is like this gene does this and this gene does that. But that's not really how it works. Genes do multiple things, right? Yeah. So by turning off this gene, which is essentially what he did, that reduces the, the risk that cells have to being infected by the AIDS virus, uh, actually potentially increases the risk of, of other diseases and other things that might not be so bad as AIDS. I don't know. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. But, I mean, that's an ethical issue, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, you're he's going after a disease that they may or may not get. It's not like they were born with AIDS and he right. fixed them from having AIDS. Like, you're doing something unethical for a disease they may never have in the first place. Like, yep. that's pretty... That's pretty janky. And, and we're not even talking about the entire ethical issue of designer babies, which is a, always been a hot topic in genetics for people. You know, the the kind of the world that we might create, the disparity. We can't even treat people as equals today based off of naturally occurring things like race or, or uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, gender or any of the other and isms that exist out there right now we're going to allow people to create babies in whatever way they want and that doesn't happen for free right so the more rich you are the more changes you can afford to make to give your offspring even more advantages on top of just being born to rich parents uh, while the poor people are still being born in the quote-unquote natural way so you create a disparage a disparaging uh uh you know, difference between your classes, essentially. Uh, have you seen Gattaca? Oh, yes, of course. And we always go, this is probably the third time that this has been mentioned on the show because it's a great movie and it really it, it really represents the point of, of this fear very well. It does show it very well. Um, and, all, and they do a good job of keeping it realistic. But, I mean, in all reality, like, how much do you pay for your child to be what you call perfect? 
Yeah, and what is perfect. <laughs> exactly. What happens when we have the same people who get too much plastic surgery being given the options to do too much gene editing on mm-hmm. their children? We come with, you know, Barbies and Kens everywhere. <laughs> Hopefully not exactly like Barbie and Ken because then we'll have a hard time reproducing. But <laughs> I would say at that point, do we even need to reproduce? Yes. They can just build babies <laughs> in test true. tubes and give them whatever genes you want. Like mm-hmm. You don't even have to be involved. They don't even have to be your genes. Nope, they don't interesting concept there but yeah so that happened in november of last year and whether you agree with it or not whether you think it is morally acceptable or not that is huge for science and it's going to force a conversation uh about genetics and ethics that needs to happen in order for us to move forward and use you know crispr and these other gene editing techniques to legitimately cure diseases right of course I, i i'm I can't say that I'm happy that it happened, but I mean, it's, it did happen. And sometimes, uh, morally corrupt or ethically unsound things happen that cause great advances in, in things like medicine, like, you know, Nazi Germany, the horrible, horrible things that the Nazis did to Jews in the name of science horrible there's no excusing it if we could go back and prevent them from doing it we would be obligated to on a moral basis but the things that have come from it still they were good things that are done after that with that knowledge that makes sense what i'm trying to say yeah you're trying to say this that we needed to science the breakthroughs they just didn't need to do it the way they did it right pretty much so hopefully uh this was nowhere near on that level, but uh, like I said, hopefully it at least forces a conversation to happen. I'm going to be interested to see if the kids end up with some other sort of disease or uh, genetic issue caused issue by it, yeah. this. Yeah, And that's the problem. He did this without having an understanding of if there would be those things, right? Maybe so. they'll end up being Superman together like the wonder twins or whatever oh my god they can wonder (laughs) twin that's amazing uh well sticking in the line of genetics uh genealogy crime solvers is a thing that exists now genealogy crime stoppers solvers oh solvers solvers. i was so confused about what crime stopping was going on i mean crime stopping that kind of goes in line with the superhero thing right that's right (laughs) yes we've genetically created superheroes stopping crime all over the world today yeah uh ellen graytack checks dna profiles in genealogy databases not to find relatives but to track down family members of unknown assailants in rape and murder cases that's interesting is it not so graytack is the director of bioinformatics at uh parabon uh nanolabs and since may of 2018 the company has used genetic geno Gina Lottery? Gina Lottie? Gina Lottie? I don't know. I think I typoed that word. <laughs> As a forensic technique for tracing down suspects through their families. That seems unethical. It does somehow. seem unethical, does it not? It does. Like, you can't always explain ethics, but you know when something sounds wrong, right. and that sounds wrong. And it's really hard because they're using this to track down murderers and rapists that are basically unknown and out not even a hint that they're suspects in these things right so like how do you justify that this is unethical to the victims of those crimes i know but at the same time like i don't know they're just they're towing a line 
Yep. You want to see those people go down, but you also want to feel like safe and that makes you feel mm-hmm. unsafe. It does. I guess if you're not committing crimes, then you are safe, but I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one, I think. Yep. And this has become like, I mean, this is a, a serious privacy issue and a new debate about genetic privacy has sparked up, especially with places like 23andMe uh, talking about selling the genetic genetic data that they've been collecting. Uh, and this will be an interesting thing to watch how it develops. I mean, considering that thanks to sites like uh, Ancestry.com and 23andMe, I read that more than 12 million Americans have sent in genetic samples to explore family origins and health issues. That's a really big number. I'm actually surprised. Yeah. I mean, so that, I mean, so far it's helped close more than a dozen cases nationwide in the last seven months, including the infamous Golden State killer case which has now been closed with the arrest of former police officer uh, Joseph D'Angelo. That's pretty crazy. I didn't hear about that. Yeah, that's how they found him, is through genetic databasing, essentially. It, it sounds like a really good thing, and I really want to back it. Yeah, but it's hard. <laughs> but yeah. So. Well, it's because, you know, where do you draw the line? Like, at what point is are they looking for things that are no longer acceptable? Like. Mm-hmm. You know, crime, if you commit a crime, you deserve to go to jail. You don't deserve to get off. So that that's okay. But what is the next thing they're going to want to do? Like, right. what's the next step I mean, into this, the unethicalness? This is the basis of all privacy issues with the government, right? Everybody agrees that we should arrest and stop terrorists before they do horrible things. But how many of us are willing to have our own personal data and conversations and our entire lives open to government monitoring in order to achieve this? There's not an answer. There's not a right answer. It's a personal decision that everybody has to make. And that's an argument that we have as a country because nobody agrees on where that line is. We're moving into like the precog where, you know, we're going to try to stop crime before it happens. Oh, like minority report. Like minority report. Yep. yep. Uh, as far as I know, we have not, uh, developed any scientifically backed, uh, psychics yet, but, uh, we'll see what happens. Boy, that'll be the day, <laughs> huh? Yes. Maybe, uh, in our review of 2019 news, that's, that's what we'll be talking about. You never know. You never know. Uh, moving on in some of the other news from 2018, uh, neutrinos, you know what neutrinos are? I know I know the name, but I can't pull anything out of my brain. Uh, they are the really hyperactive, cartoonish, funny little guys from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm drawing a total blank. You know, and reference lost on you. Am I too old? Is that what just happened here? I think so. Whatever. Fine. <laughs> Neutrinos are fundamental particles that are very similar to electrons, except that they do not carry an electric charge which means they are not affected by the electromagnetic force. Uh, and in fact, the only force which acts on neutrinos is the weak subatomic forces, which means they can travel miles and miles and miles through matter without interacting whatsoever. That's right. They have those big round like tanks that have water in them mm-hmm. and lights, and that's how they figure out when they're going through. Exactly. You got right. it. Right. I knew I knew. Uh, but where do high energy neutrinos come from? Space. I mean, that is correct technically (laughs) but we didn't really know until this last year uh and the answer is a blazar 
A blazar? I love the names of things in space. I do too. That's a good uh, one. A blazar is an active galactic nucleus with a jet of ionized matter traveling at nearly the speed of light and directed at Earth. That sounded like gibberish. <laughs> well, let me say it again. An active galactic nucleus with a jet of what ionized it... matter traveling at nearly the speed of light directed towards Earth. Dum, Can't... dum, dum. Catch you that time? <laughs> no. Okay. Break this down for me. All right, a galactic nucleus, as in the center of a galaxy. Oh, okay. Right. So essentially what they think is that there is a black hole, which is pulling in a lot of matter. Uh, and when you get a lot of matter and squeeze it together, it gets really, really hot. And they call it, uh, what do they call it? A uh, something accretion disk. I can't remember off the top of my head. But essentially it's really, really bright. And it causes a lot of ionized matter. Ionized means the electrons are breaking off. Uh, and spewing it at high speeds near the speed of light, which means highly energetic, and it's facing uh, at the Earth, which means we can see it coming at us. And it has a lot of cool effects when you look at it in in, in astro imaging and stuff like that. But it's not dangerous. Uh, not at the distance that we are. So they <laughs> gave mean, it this really cool name, and it's not even dangerous? Well, I mean, if it was next to us, we wouldn't exist. <laughs> well, if a black hole was next to us, we wouldn't exist either. Well, it depends on how close it was. Like, and, you know, people confuse black holes. They think that they, like, suck anything into them, right? But they actually exist and work the same way that any other object of that mass would work with gravity-wise, if that makes sense. Well, that's a product of bad TV. It is definitely. So, like, if you replaced our sun with a black hole of the same mass outside of not being able to see anything and life dying because of no more sunlight, like, gravitationally, we wouldn't know the difference. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. But, uh, so yeah, blazars is where they come from. We know that because of the ice cube neutrino observatory in antarctica uh which is exactly what you're explaining those giant tubs of of water underground with uh lights basically uh and it tracked back uh a neutrino that it got hit with i think last november or maybe it was september of 2017 that it, that it got hit but it was able to trace it back to a blazar 3.7 billion light years from earth that's a really long ways. It is a really long ways. That means that neutrino was traveling for 3.7 billion years from when it left to when it hit Earth. That's really crazy. It is. Is it to think that things were... I mean, it's uh, that's like one-third the time of the universe's existence, right? I was I just going to say, like... Did we exist when it took off? I think it's like 13 billion. I mean, it's it's changing, but it's kind of bouncing into an ever-narrowing window. And I can't remember what the final, what the last number was. I'm pretty sure it was like 13 billion or 12.7 billion years or something like that. You know what I have in front of me? This magic machine. How old is the universe? 13.8 billion. So I was close. Give or take a billion years. <laughs> when you're talking in billions, that's not much. No, nope, it's not. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that happened last year. So that's cool. For on the astrophysics front, it opens up some new lines of research, definitely. And new names for D and D characters: Blastoids, Bla- Blazar, yes. Blazar. There you go. <laughs> yeah, you can you can create your new D and D character, Blazar the Destroyer, and you can order your role playing dice from AdventureDice.ca. Hey, use the Quark. Uh, discount code to get 10% off. Hey, see how I did that? They also have <laughs> bags, you said? They have bags, like dice bags that is literally chainmail, like metal 
made in the four circle, I assume. I haven't checked, but it looked like the four circle, which is a pattern of chainmail uh, crossover section. Into by, they have the barred one, which is like a black, it looked like a blackish silver bag with like rainbow uh, chain links at the top. It was pretty cool. Uh, and then they have like the fighter bag and they come in large and smalls too. So you can check those out. I mean, I, I definitely want one. Why do we not have these already? Uh, because I just found out about them. That's a <laughs> that's really, really good reason. That's what the answer is. You know, my birthday is coming up here pretty fast. <laughs> that is true. Uh, I could totally rock a chainmail druid You know, my bag. birthday was a couple months ago. You could get me a, a post-birthday present. I guess I could do that. <laughs> but yeah, so that's how we tie in uh, Blazars and Neutrinos to our sponsors. <laughs> Blazars. All right. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, water on Mars again. <laughs> Some more water on Mars? Yes, but not the water-bearing rocks, which in my opinion are cheater ways of saying there's water on Mars. We're talking a wide lake of standing liquid near the South Pole buried under roughly one and a half kilometers of ice. So is it salt water or not salt water that would be a great question and my guess is probably salt water but and the reason i say this is because the claim that it exists is not without challenge and the water at that depth should be around negative 68 celsius which is about negative 90 fahrenheit uh aka frozen yeah frozen <laughs> for uh, sure yes. so even if it was heavy brine water it would still have a really difficult time remaining in a liquid state. So between that and the fact that uh, this this was discovered by studying data from one of the uh, European Space Agency programs, uh, I can't remember what their orbiter is called, but uh, our orbiter, ours being NASA, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, orbiter uh, has yet to find the existence of this lake with its radar scanning. And so that sounds a little it does. Janky. The writers have an explanation, so we'll have to verify it. But their idea is if the ice above it has formed into a texture that's like styrofoam, right? That's kind of uh, not very dense in a lot of air pockets, uh -huh. that it might not only be able to act as an insulator for the water, but also might confuse uh, the sensors on the NASA orbiter because their their radar sensors aren't quite the same as the ones that discovered it. So okay. we'll have to keep watch this coming year and see if they're able to confirm that existence or not. Because that would be really exciting because liquid water, even at that temperature, uh, is a very big push of current existing life potentially on Mars. We were just talking about the stuff that survives down in the deep. Yep. Like maybe there's some deep Mars fish swimming around up there. Yep. I mean, if... The other thing that's cool is if it's possible for things to exist there and we find that, then it increases the likelihood that there's life in other places like on uh, one of Saturn's moons. I, oh, man, it starts with an E. Europa? No, it's Ent... And I can't remember. I mean, there's a couple of moons that are... It's not Europa, which is a moon that people are looking at, but it's a moon that has essentially a liquid water core it's it's warmed up by the gravity of Saturn, so it spews uh, water hundreds of miles into space. Water vapor is kind of interesting. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. 
but yeah. Are you not impressed that I came up with Europa? Uh, I am impressed that you came up with Europa. Now I have to look at some of the NASA posters. I have her hanging around to make sure the Europa one isn't one of them in here. No, I'm looking out the window. So. Oh, well, I am impressed then. <laughs> Consider me Thank impressed. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I got to get my credit when credit yes. is due. Uh, and lastly, for this segment anyways, I thought was pretty cool, curing paralysis. Have you heard about that? What kind of paralysis? Uh, any type of da- uh, paralysis caused by damage to the spinal cord. Oh, that would be really cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, once the spinal cord is damaged, that's pretty much it, or so we thought. Uh, recent work in intensive rehabilitation paired with electric stimulation of the spinal cord has allowed six previously paralyzed people to walk. Uh, I mean, only a few steps and with support, but I mean, that is, I mean, not to pun, but steps in the right direction, right? That's crazy. Uh, And that's promising news because there are nearly 1.5 million people in the United States who suffer from some form of paralysis from spinal cord injury. That's actually a rather large number. It is. I was very surprised when I read that. Um, But interestingly, and I guess it makes sense when you think about it, but a study of quadriplegic patients uh, who were given a survey have rated uh, regaining hand usage as much higher than regaining the use of legs. I would assume it's an Uh, easier, like, less to do, less complex. Well, this is of the patients of their preference. So, I mean, when thinking about it, if I had to lose use of my legs or my arms, I would probably pick legs. Yeah, I probably would too. Uh, so scientists are trying to figure out a way to adjust the research in order to, to regain usage of hand movements. Uh, and there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to determine who can recover, how much they can recover, uh, what stimulation works the best, but it's very promising and, and very cool. I thought that is extremely cool. There's a lot of people out there who could really benefit from that. Yep. Uh, we'll go ahead and, and take a break and hear from one of our awesome friend podcasts. Uh, and then we'll be back to finish up awesome news from 2018. If you like classic movies, modern movies, or even indie films, make sure you check out the St. Paul Filmcast with Nick and Dan. Available everywhere you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. We're here to finish up our discussion of hot topic news of the science variety of 2018 uh, issues, topics, things that I picked because I liked them. (laughs) Uh, So interesting. And actually, I was doing some research to try and uh, help remember some of the things I'd heard over the year. And I came across something that I didn't actually hear and uh, thought it was interesting. And I thought it was interesting enough that that it ended up making my top news stories of 2018. Uh, Have I talked about it enough without telling you what it is? No, not enough. All right, so it's really cool. It's this thing that I found. I'm just kidding. Uh, So you know that measurements, units like uh, a pound or a kilogram or a second are all defined very specifically based off of something. And over time, we change the definitions, sometimes a little bit and sometimes significantly, Uh, It never changes really the value. It just changes what we use to keep track of what that value is, right? So isn't there like a, isn't there like a iron bar somewhere that's the equivalent of an inch? Um, I don't know about that one, but there is a bar of 
Platinum Iridium uh, in Paris at the International Bureau of Weights and Measurements that is the official kilogram, right? So, and that leads us to the fact that the kilogram had a major refinement uh, in its definition this last year. Oh, yeah. What was that? They have changed it from being this block of metal <laughs> to uh, being basically defined by the Planck constant. Planck? Like P-L-A-N-K? P-L-A-N-C-K. Planck. Okay. Uh, as in the scientist. Oh, um, okay. <clears throat> so have you heard of the Planck constant? I have not. So throughout nature, there are just these constants that exist, right? So uh, like the Planck constant is essentially if you take the total energy of a photon, it is equal to whatever its frequency is times the Planck constant, always, in every photon, no matter what the frequency is. Okay. So that's why it's a constant. It's a natural constant. It has a very specific number. So usually what they do when they redefine what something is, is they see what you have to do with a solid number and the new constant non-changing number to make it the same value. Does that make sense? I don't think so. So, for example, second, uh, I can't remember what it used to be, but they changed it. No, let's, let's take that back. Meter. Meter was the measurement of a thing that existed somewhere at one point, right? Mm-hmm. So they changed that to be based off of the speed of light. So how they did that is they took that length that a meter is, and they timed how long it took a speed, the uh, light to travel, uh, you know, from one end of that to the other, which they didn't really times it. What they did is they took how long it would take to go a certain distance and then they divided that down to get this how long it takes to go a meter right so when you have the speed of light which is a natural constant it doesn't change and you figure out how long it takes light to travel the length of a meter that gives you a fraction of the speed of light that is constant and doesn't change does that okay. make sense yeah I'm so a meter is how long it takes or sorry a meter is the length that light travels in that amount of seconds Okay, cool. I'm tracking. So that will never change. It doesn't degrade. It can't be stolen, right? So that's kind of the problem with like how kilogram was. The platinum iridium bar is subject to being lost, stolen, or damaged. And there's actually proof that over time it has been losing mass. How is that possible? Well, I mean, if you think of like how radiation works, right? You When you radiate something, you are losing mass essentially so there's all sorts of mechanisms that things can lose mass through and i don't know exactly which mechanism that was but they just have now proof that over the years it has been using mass which means technically we've been gaining mass relatively speaking that explains a lot yes so and uh, us americans i don't know about the rest of the world but we don't need any help in gaining mass not at all <laughs> so uh it's good that this was changed there's actually uh several things this was the only one that was a major change a lot of the other changes uh happened to be uh like i think it was ampere kelvin and the mole which will be defined as the constants from uh the boltzmann constant and the elementary electric charge and Avogadro's constant. Uh, so in the same way that they they referenced whatever the current value is, they just made it to where it's an exact way that you can get that value from these constants. 
Interesting. Uh, which is kind of has some interesting side effects because if we, the way that it works now for weights and measures is from those physical things that exist in reality, uh, there's a set of calibration tools that are used to calibrate weights to that there in palace from the uh, palace from paris from those original things right uh-huh. then they take those tools and they send them to major calibration companies all over the world to calibrate their tools and then they use those tools to calibrate other tools that then go out to official places like doctor's offices or anywhere that has to have a calibrated uh weight system weight measurement system to make sure because over time those things become off right Mm -hmm. so they have to recalibrate them often to make sure that they're correct Uh, and so it's a big chain that passes down to do this but these new definitions uh, allow pretty much anybody to make a thing to verify I mean obviously you and I can't in our home well maybe I can but (laughs) (laughs) given, given the right stuff but you know the average person can't do it in their home but it makes it to where it might not be you know the people that have access to the physical kilogram bar kind of hold all of the power right and they could charge whatever they wanted if they so chose Uh, I don't know if there's a charge but on the end there's certainly charge for us to go have something calibrated they're going to hold our kilograms hostage? Yes, they could if they wanted to. Haha, <laughs> you'll never know what a kilogram is again. Mwah. Mwah. But, uh, <laughs> of all the super uh, villain evil plans that have ever existed, that's probably not the lamest, but not the best either. That's a uh, Lex Luthor move yeah, right there. There you go. Uh, maybe a what's-his-face from uh, that one movie. Ha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despicable Me. What's his name? Oh, Gru? Gru. That's, that sounds like a Gru conspiracy, right? I think so. steal the, the kilogram. <laughs> but yeah, so that happened last year, along with like the other ones I said. Uh, so that's interesting. I mean, it's not like news shattering it's not going to change anything for anybody because what a kilogram weighs is still the same but i always find it interesting when they change things like that because you and i were talking the other day about measurements right and what constitutes a second and how you could make you could fix our issue with the calendar because right now our issue is every four years we have to add a day to make up for the not exact time frame that 24 hours is right because a day an actual day is not 24 hours it's a little bit longer than 24 hours so every four years we add a day to make up for that but what a lot of people don't know is not only do we add a day every four years but on every 100th year we don't add that day right because if you divide 100 by four so like if you count by fours when you get to 100 100 would be a leap year but we don't add a day during that leap year on every hundred right uh-huh. But that's not the end of it. Every thousand years, we do add the day that we weren't going to add because it was 100 years that we were going to add because it's a leap year. <laughs> like 2000. Right. So 2000, or let's go back one or 100 years before that. So 1900 was supposed to be a leap year, but because it was 100, we didn't add the day. Now, every four years after that, we did until we got to 2000. Uh, and we weren't going to add it because it was 100, except for it was 1,000. It was 2,000 even, so we did add that year. So 2,000 was a leap year. So all of this crappy, horrible stuff that should make everybody cringe because it doesn't line up perfectly, uh, you could change. I mean, I think. I haven't found a reason why we couldn't, other than it, the horrible effects it would have on society having to change. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're not down with change. Right. 
you could change the definition of what a second is to make it to where 24 hours was exactly how long a day was. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, so. I don't know. I would miss my leap years. (laughs) I would not. (laughs) But uh, People born on leap years would miss them. You know, they just wouldn't have any birthdays anymore, so they would never grow older, right? Isn't that how that works? If only. (laughs) We're going to skip my birthday this year. All right. That sounds good with me. (laughs) All right. The other thing that I had uh, to kind of end... I guess it's not the last thing. I got two more things, but they're small. So Ebola, we had huge Ebola outbreaks uh, this last year and the year before, if you recall any of that. I do not recall Not that. in the United States, but in Congo. Uh, it is the largest outbreak of Ebola in the world in history, over 500 cases. Crazy. Uh, and what's even more interesting is Congo is a war to our nation, and what we did was use an experimental Ebola vaccine. Uh, we rolled it out large scale, and it's preventing infection and saving lives. It is the first highly effective Ebola vaccine. Uh, interesting enough, it's been around for a long time. I mean, not a long, long time, but longer than now. It basically, due to lack of pharmaceutical company interest, it just kind of sat on a shelf until it was licensed in 2014, and then it wasn't used until this last year. I really thought that this was going in an opposite direction. I thought you were going to say we rolled out this horrible Ebola thing that went horribly catastrophically wrong. <laughs> I was very happy to hear that it went well. I mean, I don't know that we didn't, but I'm pretty sure we didn't. I have not read. I mean, I'm sure if you dredge the internet, you will find a conspiracy because you can find a conspiracy about everything. But as far as I know, we were not the cause of the Ebola outbreak just in rolling out the you know vaccine. But this is kind of something that is interesting about the capitalistic nature of the pharmaceutical companies, right? Like, there's a benefit. There's a real benefit to having capitalistic pharmaceutical companies because there's a race to create drugs and to treat and cure diseases because anytime you have competition, you have a much faster creation of processes. Yeah. Uh, And But the downside is, is the less common diseases, the diseases that aren't very profitable, often take a backseat or sometimes no seat at all. Isn't that the truth? And so we had an Ebola vaccine, a vaccine that could be given either to everybody or people in high-risk areas that could have prevented all of these people from dying. But because we didn't have any major Ebola outbreaks, there was no money in licensing it. That's pretty crazy. Yep. It's hard to think that, that people had to lose their lives for no reason. Yep. It's, I mean, that's unfortunately one of the downsides to, to having a capitalistic uh, medical system. Uh, but... On the other side, I mean, the biggest creators of new and novel drugs uh, come from the U.S. So, I mean... I don't know why, but I thought you were going to say U.K. Uh, I mean, there are a lot in the U.K. U.K. has much easier, I think, don't quote me, but from what I understand, much easier, uh, whatever their equivalent to the FDA is, uh, laws for like uh, like testing and and trials and stuff like that especially involving humans that's interesting because uh like when we went to ireland you couldn't get tylenol off the counter you had to go and get it from the pharmacy you remember that Mm -hmm. yeah and so it's interesting to think that in a country that won't even let you get your own tylenol that uh (laughs) they're so lenient on their rules and it's true i think it's just a matter of what it is because i think there's other drugs that we have to have a prescription for that they do not interesting yeah uh and then lastly uh, I, I save this for last because it's it's science 
ish, but it's also kind of political in an interesting way, anyways. But uh, no such thing. Yes. A Dutch uh, physician and activist, in response to the growing fears of the threat to women's rights, specifically Roe vs. Wade and abortion issues, uh, has started a new company called Aid Access, and it's an online service through which women can obtain. Uh, the medical abortion pill, what's it called, Mifepristone, I think? Mifepristone? Uh, I don't know that one, sorry. Uh, something like that. Uh, through basically mail order uh, that they can take at home. I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, I mean, I don't personally have any issues with women having the right to choose their abortions. It's not an abortion issue that has me concerned. It's, from what I understand, I mean, I guess you can get these over the counter right now in, in a lot of places and to take them at home, right? Uh, yeah, you can get, like, Plan Bs and then take them home. So I guess, I don't know. But my, you got to go to the clinic. Yeah, my concern was that some of these abortion medicines and, and things can be very uh, harsh on on the body, women's bodies. That's for sure. Uh, and so I was my concern was for the women taking drugs unsupervised to do these things was my concern, not anything about abortion itself necessarily. Especially, like, young kids or... Right. But, I mean, I guess it's it's interesting that this is available because there's a lot of, there really is from people a lot of fear that uh, abortion rights will be lessened uh, in the next several years for various political reasons. So, I don't know how that would affect these uh, mail order. Would they become illegal? I don't know. But it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to the list of awesome news things that happened in 2018? I don't think so. I think that's a pretty good list. Yeah. Uh, if you guys have anything that you saw happen last year that you think we missed or that you want to talk about, feel free to hit me up with it uh, on Twitter at Physicist Chris, or you can come on to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science and let us know about your cool science things from 2018, things that you think uh, should be on our top list as well. Um, I just want to throw a thanks out there for our new sponsors for uh, Coffee Gator. You can go check out their coffee stuff at coffeegator.com. Use the discount code QUARK, Q-U-A-R-K, for a 15% discount and another 10% comes back to the show. Uh, also for Player One Coffee at playeronecoffee.com, you can check out our link in our description, which will give you a 5% discount on their coffee. And also, of course, to Adventure Dice, uh, you can find them at adventuredice.ca. Check out their awesome dice they have for sale. Again, use that discount code uh, QUARK for a 10% discount on their products. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the show, and we will see you next week. Thanks for having us. Network. You can check out more shows like it at oddfixnetwork.com.